Merry Christmas Eve. I don't have my watch on me, so I won't catch if we get, get close to the time. Just shout it out. Uh, the anticipation is, has been building over the Advent season, hasn't it? And we're finally here on the cusp of Christmas Day. My name's Tim Bassett. I'm the resident equipping pastor here, and I've been invited to share some culminating thoughts on our Advent series. Although it's not really our, our church's teaching style to wrap a pretty bow on every sermon or series, I thought, hey, in uh, the spirit of Christmas, maybe I'd give it a shot. But then again, I'm not even really allowed to wrap gifts in my own home, so <laughs> see how it goes. How many of my fellow bad gift wrappers are here tonight? All right, you're with me. As a church, we've been taking a look at Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Specifically, we've been looking at some unlikely members of Jesus' family. We know that in Jesus' time, your genealogy is your resume. It showed where you came from and who your people are. In order to prove your right to a throne or a position of power, we know that Herod the Great did everything he could to hide where he really came from because it would have cost him his throne. But the curious thing about Jesus is that he doesn't. He doesn't hide that there are people in his family line that aren't Jewish. He doesn't hide that there are people who aren't morally upright. And possibly most stunning of all, because of the context of Jesus' day, we find in his genealogy women. We've focused in on these women. Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, who, loved, who longed for justice so much that she tricked Judah into sleeping with her in order to see that justice came. Rahab, the prostitute, who threw herself not at a man on the street, but on the God of Israel in order to meet her needs and save her life. Ruth, the Moabite, who took the risk of approaching Boaz on the threshing floor in order to see her mother-in-law be redeemed. And finally, Bathsheba, the wife of King David, the adulterer, the liar, and the murderer, who God called a man after his own heart, despite all of it. All of these members of Jesus' genealogy are unexpected members of the family. But tonight, we're going to finish our reflections on the genealogy of Jesus by looking at one more woman and her husband. Her name is Mary, and her husband is Joseph. These are the parents of Jesus. To be honest, I've been struggling uh, to fit these two into the theme of being unexpected members of the family. When I first heard that I'd be teaching on them, I went through both accounts in Scripture, Matthew and uh, again in Luke, and all that I could find as far as flack on these two was the usual content. They were kind of poor, and they're super young. Mary's probably 12 or 13 years old, and Joseph might be in his, early, or his late teens. I figured that the more I dug, though, the more that I dug, I'd find the really good stuff, you know? But what I found instead was that it wasn't uncommon in that day to be poor. Over 20% of Israel at this time was actually below the poverty line. And less than 5% of the population owned the majority of the resources. 
So it wasn't incredibly surprising that we find Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, poor. It wasn't uncommon. It was just a lowly lifestyle. And to be young and married was not uncommon at all either. Joseph wasn't robbing the cradle in, uh, you know, first century standards. And he can't go to their family lines either. Joseph's from the line of David. And Mary is a relative of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah was from the priestly line of Abijah, and uh, Elizabeth was from the line of Aaron. What's more, Luke in chapter 1 actually compares godly, beloved Zechariah to Mary and proves that Mary's faith is actually stronger than his. So if I wanted to call Mary and Joseph unexpected members of the genealogy, I guess I might have to look at their public perception in that time and that culture. Joseph was no doubt going to take some heat from the community for not divorcing Mary. Some people in the community might still believe that she should be stoned for sleeping with another man while betrothed to Joseph. People could have looked at Joseph as a coward and unrighteous for not following the letter of the law. Which says to, um, yeah, which says to stone, stone his wife. He may have been called a fool for not taking the financial benefits that he could have still had the right to if he divorced her quietly. Mary, on the other hand, knew the same reality, but for her it was a lose-lose. She could be publicly humiliated and possibly stoned, or Joseph could receive her, and stick with her, and their lives would be marked inevitably by judgment and whispers from relatives in the community long after the wedding day. We know what Mary and Joseph chose, though. Joseph obeyed God, took on Mary's shame, and made it his own by marrying her. A number of scholars call him Joseph the Just because of this. And Mary believed the angel and accepted the call and the cost in her life and sang about it in Luke 1, 46, which we heard earlier. What kind of 13-year-old girl who finds out she's going to be pregnant and could be stoned or reviled for it sings a song to the Lord? And what 19-year-old guy trusts God that much and lives out the spirit of the law in that way? People with incredible faith do. So you see, any potential poor public perception of Mary and Joseph would merely be the product of their faith. They are amazing people of God. So here's here's the deal, and I suspect you see it too. Scripture presents Mary and Joseph as anything but unworthy or unexpected members of the family of God. They just don't fit the theme. They're the type of people in our modern Christian culture that we would put on a pedestal. These are the model Christians. If God is making a point about his love for the unexpected and the outsider, why would he choose such incredible people to be Jesus' parents? I think the genealogy ends with people like Mary and Joseph 
because it teaches us that the second we think we figured out, we figured out who's the expected ones, the ones who really deserve to be in the family. Jesus wants to come into that space in our lives and say, I came for them too. I needed to come for them. Jesus' parents teach us that God's, in God's eyes, by his standards, even the best of us need mercy. It teaches us that we all, in fact, are unexpected members of the family, right? Does Christmas remind us of that? Does Christmas remind us and give us cause to celebrate and worship the God who knew that even at our best, we still need a Savior. If our concept of being in the family tonight is based on the fact that at least, at least we aren't an adulterer, a liar, or a murderer, or a drunk, or a gambler, or a thief, or whatever, if we believe we're in this family, because of something we've done or not done, then we've totally missed the point. A lie has been birthed in our hearts about where our eternal worth and security is found. In a world where people are quick to give us praise for our grades, our athleticism, our career achievements, our good behavior, our nice stuff, our spirituality, and yeah, even our religious deeds. It's easy for self-reliance and pride to be birthed in our hearts. But if we were really as good as we think we are, Jesus wouldn't really have needed to come. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Mary and Joseph, in a way, become the most crucial part of this genealogical framework because they support that message and really the whole gospel message which says that not even Mary and Joseph belong in this family apart from their son. I understand on the flip side that some of us know this truth about not belonging or being good enough all too well. I'm sure there are some of us here tonight who fall much farther on the side of believing that we're unexpected or unwanted members of the family of God. I think in a world where people are so quick to condemn and judge us for our failures, our social awkwardness, our underachievement, our addictions, our adultery, our poverty, and our past, it's easy for shame and hopelessness, depression, and bitterness to be birthed in our hearts. If our concept of being unexpected members of the family of God tonight is so strong that it causes us to doubt whether we're actually in, or if we ever could even be in, then I think this Christmas we need to be acquainted or reacquainted not only with the king of Israel who sits on David's throne, but with the king of sinners misfits and outcasts who sits enthroned in heaven. The king who says, I came for you before you even knew me. Don't question your worth in my eyes. 
And I died for you knowing all of your sin, all of your failure, all of your secrets. Don't question my love for you. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. On Christmas, I just get this feeling, guys, that something really, there's just something really special about this world. I get the feeling that God must really love us a lot. Because what might be the most unexpected thing about the genealogy to me is that after all we've done to God, and after all it would cost him, he still showed up. God still showed up. God showed up in our greatest time of need in real history. He showed up while we were yet sinners. The eternal God entered time. The creator walked among his creation. Our king became a servant. Our savior became our sin, who knew no sin, so that we could be qualified to be in his family forever. We have a a heavenly father who kept his promise. Do we believe that tonight? My prayer is that we do. Because I know that he's going to show up again and and make all things new. He's coming back again. I hope that we can believe that he keeps his promises. From Tamar to Rahab to Ruth to David, every single member of Jesus' genealogy put their hope in something greater than themselves to save them. Ultimately, Mary and Joseph and the patriarchs looked to the promises of God. And Hebrews lists a number of them in the hall of faith. They were waiting for the God of Israel to be who he said he would be and to do what he said he would do. And he did it. On Christmas Day, he did it. The vast majority of people in in this genealogy we've been studying didn't get to see Jesus. But you can imagine what they would have done, how they would have celebrated if they had been there. I just imagine, I can picture the mothers of Jesus leaning over Mary's shoulder, weeping with tears. David dancing like a fool in front of Jesus the King. And I can even picture Eve with Adam, with her faces on the ground, worshiping the God who in the garden they knew as Emmanuel, God with us. And now he'd come to fix what they had broken. They would, have, they would have worshipped Jesus, the light of the world, with all that they had. So as we pray, prepare to kind of enter into Christmas Day together, light our candles, it got me thinking about the four candles we have up front. If you remember, we heard from people from our congregation that testified to the light. We heard from Will We heard from Annie and her friends in Lebanon. We heard from uh, Mike Buck. We heard from Jeshua. These people lit these candles to testify to how Jesus came for them in an unexpected way for unexpecting people. 
And tonight I want to give all of us the same opportunity. So on your way in, you should have received a candle. If you don't have one, you can kind of pop your hand up. We'll try to get one to you. And what I want us all to do after I pray and as our candles are being lit is think about our testimonies as our resume to the world. What are we putting out in front of the world this Christmas to show them that we're a part of God's family? Are we showing them that he's the only way we ever got in? Or are we taking credit for our adoption into the family? And what aren't we showing them? Are we hiding our failures because we think they disqualify us? Or are we using them as an opportunity to describe his love and his mercy to others? Here's the truth, this Christmas crossroads. We're all unexpected members of the family of God. And we couldn't be here. We could not be here without Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father but through him. That's why he came for us. And that's why tomorrow is the greatest day in human history. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And uh, we just want to worship you because you kept your promise. You kept your promise to show up, not just for male or female, Jew or Gentile, uh, righteous or unrighteous. You said, we all need you. You came for the world. You sent your son for the world. And Lord, I know I'm filled, I'm surrounded by family who has put their hope in you, who have seen the light, and we just want to proclaim that to one another, to encourage one another to go out on Christmas Day and share it with the world. We love you. You're our king. You're our savior. And we just worship you tonight. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the chance to be together. And we just love you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.